Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates, and it's a gorgeous day here in Green Country, Oklahoma. We hope it's beautiful wherever and whenever you're listening. Right now, Chris and I are going to do what most internet movie nerds do on lovely spring days like this, bitch about movies. On today's show, we're reviewing Gone Girl. Then in special features, we will be discussing Hitchcock's heirs. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with a couple film recommendations. But first, Ghostbusters Cinematic Universe. Wait. What? Well, Chris, I'm sure you heard the news that Channing Tatum and potentially Chris Pratt will be starring in a another spinoff of the Ghostbusters series. This is a couplet to the all-female version directed by Paul Feig and starring Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Leslie Jones, and Kate McKinnon, only two of those I've ever even heard of. I don't understand you. What they're going to do is apparently the Ghostbusters cinematic universe is going to become much like the Marvel cinematic universe because there's so many stories to tell about uh, people treating ghosts as uh, as rodents. Wait, what? Exactly. There, it's. I don't know what the story can conceivably about how like how much there is within this universe to t- make movies about the Ghostbusters. Um, and I'm saying this as a person who loved the original and really was quite fond of the sequel. I know not a lot of people are. That's because you were a child when you saw the sequel. No, no, I've, I've seen it recently and it's still, <laughs> it, it still means something to me. Through, through, through the lens of nostalgia, yes. The, the, solely through the lens of nostalgia. Um, maybe I just, uh, I wanted to be Vigo whenever I, whenever I was a kid. But I think this is very emblematic of where Hollywood, the direction Hollywood is going and that Back in the 80s, it was popular movie, sequel, 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 until it died out. Then in the early 2000s, we had the reboot with Batman Begins and Star Trek. And and the trilogy as well. Yes. Like just the kind of tight trilogy of Lord of the Rings. Okay, yeah, and and that too. Now it seems like what we're getting into is Avengers paved the way for the idea that you have all these characters. If you can make money with one character, why not put them all together? Um if you look at the box office mojo, most highest grossing pictures ever, it's Avatar, and that's original sci-fi, and it's James Cameron, and I think you and I have talked about this. I'm convinced James Cameron sold his soul to Satan. Ergo, he, he, movies that that's, should never make that, as that, much money. That's where the money came from. Is selling his okay. soul to Satan. The second is Titanic, and you can't make a sequel to Titanic, and again, James Cameron. It has been done by Asylum, though. All Titanic right. Titanic 2. But as far as something that can actually make money. And then third is Avengers. The only one of those three that is actually repeatable for for multiple studios would be, of course, the Avengers. And so that's why you see the DC Cinematic Universe finally happening with uh, DC Comics. In the leaked Sony emails, they wanted to combine the Men in Black series with the 21 Jump Street series. So (laughs) I think Hollywood has finally hit critical mass as far as lack of ideas whenever they're taking one idea that worked in one picture, spin it off into multiples, and then coupling them together into one giant finished product. It's mashup culture. No, that's exactly what's going on. And we're going to get to a point wherever every single movie uh, culminates in one thing. Yeah, I I mean, I agree. I With this news... um, I was really confused, to be perfectly honest, like uh, because it feels like not only does it fit into this thing that you're talking about of like, it seems like every movie is culminating into one single universe of like, we're trying we're trying to connect it all, which I really don't like. I really don't like this idea at all. I mean, for um, now, you mean the idea of a cinematic universe or Ghost versus Cinematic Universe? Both, uh, both? A cinematic universe in general, really, like maybe, especially as a trend, mm-hmm. like maybe it works for Marvel. You know, we talked about Marvel last week or the last show. And um, I mean, it's not something that I love, but I get why, there, why there's fans like Ghostbusters feels really weird to me because Ghostbusters isn't this thing where it's like, oh, well, people have been reading the comic books since they were kids and all this stuff. Like you played with the crappy toys, you watched the really crappy cartoon and you saw the great and then, OK, uh, just movies. By, and, and, and that was it. That was all there was. And so whenever this uh, female, this all female reboot was announced. I actually was pretty excited about it because at least it feels like uh, it's not just a straight a like I, I've always thought that the idea of bringing back getting the whole gang back together and making a Ghostbusters three was just going to be sad. A like, little trite. Yeah. Well, like I love him, but Dan Aykroyd is just way past his prime. I don't think Bill Murray is in the same you know, he's not the same character that he was then. Right. Um, it's just none of it. Uh, none of it. I would 
I, I just don't need it. Well, this and, is this is where I'm getting ready to show my Ghostbusters nerddom is they've wanted to do this since uh, Chris Farley was alive. Like at one point in time, I believe it was going to be Chris Farley and Chris Rock were the guys who they passed on as, the, as, a, as a reboot. Yes, as a okay. reboot. So they've wanted to do this. And Bill Murray, as a consequence of Ghostbusters 2, has always been skeptical. And as to try and impede the process, he even said the only way he's coming back is if he could be a ghost. <laughs> Which, in high, you know, at the time, it really, when I was a kid, it irritated me. Well, like, why won't you do it? But now, he was, I think he was right. Yeah, no, I, I think so, too. And, I mean, maybe that would be, like, because wasn't Slimer was written as the ghost of John Belushi, right? I yes, believe I believe exactly. that was the mm-hmm. at least the lore or at that, the very least uh, Bluto from Animal House. Right. No, like I, I legitimately think like at least in early drafts, it said Slimer didn't have a name and it said the ghost of John Belushi. Uh-huh. Like that's what I've heard. Um, so the idea of rebooting it as a female, all female cast and giving it to someone like Paul Feig, like I like the idea because a like if. If this is inevitable and it feels like it is, you know, it's like you said, something they've been trying to do at least since the 90s as far as bringing the franchise back in some way. Um, this at least seems more interesting to me. A fresher way of going about it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had some arguments with with friends about this in uh, just who, who are on the opposite side of me who say, oh, well, they're they're just ruining my childhood. No, they're not. Like your childhood still exists in. Those other two movies and those toys that you played with and all of those things. Well, and not to be this guy, but if your childhood is dependent on the Ghostbusters, then you need therapy. <laughs> I mean, frankly, you, you need to find some purpose in your life beyond the Ghostbusters. You know, I'm not saying that it's going to be the, you know, my favorite movie of whatever next summer or whenever it comes yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, but like, I am intrigued. This is more intriguing to me than something else. So when the, the new all male cast reboot uh, news came out. I just I couldn't believe it just felt so slimy and so like, oh, no, we got we pissed off our fans or the fans that are built in. And so we better throw them a bone. See, and I actually disagree with that. I don't think it's about appealing to the fans. I think it is like we were talking about earlier is trying to drain as much money as you can out of a property. You and that's so? it. That seems even like more even, even slimier. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and honestly, that's what I think it is, is, again, Avengers paved the way. But the thing about Avengers is, again, those were pre-existing properties that they each had their own movie. They had their own fan base, and then you can bind them. Mm-hmm. This is retroactively taking something that exists and then trying to spider it out. Try, yeah, trying to make it bigger than it is. And, and and that's one of the other things is, like, at least with the comic book, there's so much, you know, there's so many issues of comic books, so many storylines, so much lore that mm-hmm. you can you can mine that for a long time. Um, even if you get, you know, kind of you know, boring returns for general audience, like I'm sure that obviously there is that built in fan base who who will, you know, probably continue to, right. to show up um, with with this. I mean, I don't know, like one of my favorite tweets in reaction to this when it first the new news first broke was uh, Matt Singer, who I believe he he's writes for uh, Screen Crush. Now, I hope that's correct. Um, he tweeted something uh, about like. Uh, it was basically like a mock pitch to uh, to a studio that was like, okay, what do you got, kid? And it's like, well, you're going to love it. It's Ghostbusters, but with babies. And like, oh, yes, here, take take $200 million or, or something. And, you know, what do, you know, where does it end? Are we going to, we're going to reboot Baby Geniuses. Uh-huh. And, and, <laughs> and put them into Ghostbusters uh-huh. suits. Uh-huh. Um, no, it's, if nothing else, it will be interesting to see where it goes. Because again, I think we're finally getting out of the reboot and trilogy era after, you know, only 10 years. And now we're entering into the cinematic universe era. And we, you know, here's the sad part. We have no one to blame but ourselves. That, that's probably true, but I'm exhausted. I'm already exhausted by this. Well, speaking of having no one to blame but yourself, next we're going to dive into a tale of murder, marriage, bourbon, and betrayal with David Fincher's blockbuster, Gone Girl. The hallmark of a sociopath is a lack of empathy. Amy lost a lot of blood in there. Then somebody mopped it up. Why do they mop up the blood if they're trying to stage a crime scene? Whatever they found, I think it's safe to assume that it's very bad. I'd finally realized I am frightened of my own husband. I would show you, as if you're doing a deposition, what to say, what not to say. A trained monkey? A trained monkey who doesn't get lethal injections. She's going to eat you alive. You assaulted her? It's not good enough for you? I hit her? It's not even close. Absolutely not. I never touched her. Usually I like to start off a review with a couple paragraphs filled with run-on sentences in an attempt to set the stage for our discussion. I might try to argue that, as an auteur, the director's entire body of work fits into a bigger picture. Then, of course, I'd pull a quote from the director in support of the claim. 
Maybe something like this. I think people are perverts. I've maintained that. That's been, I've, that's the foundation of my career. Or maybe I'd pick a specific theme as a jumping off point, say misogyny. Then I could play a different soundbite to reinforce that idea. Maybe this time I'd play something like this. Tanner, are you trying to tell me that this photo is remotely in the realm of acceptable I'm behavior? so sick of being no, picked apart by women. Or in the case of Gone Girl, I could even begin with a tie-in to our Midwestern roots. I'll spare you another soundbite with this one. Y'all come back now, you hear? Hunter, I'm trying to intro here. Oh, sorry. Uh, but honestly, there's so much to dive into here. I think we should probably just hit the ground running. Uh, but before we begin, I will warn you, listeners, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time on spoilers. Uh, this is a movie that's been out for a while and is now easily accessible. So uh, we both highly recommend that you see Gone Girl before listening to the review. But before we get into spoilers... Let's take a brief moment and uh, a brief moment and discuss our broader reactions to this film. So, Hunter, go. You know, I was just really amazed how it ended and everyone died. I mean, that I did not see that ending coming. It, where just it, everyone died. Well, because there's a misdirect with the title "Gone Girl." You think it's only going to be one death, one girl, when in fact it's world. gone everyone yeah. and so that completely took me by surprise well also the m night Shyamalan uh directorial credit at the end uh was also a, a big twist well and what i really liked is how in a true hitchcock style david fincher did a cameo and he was actually the one who murdered everyone okay we're just kidding uh i'll start this off this spoiler free portion of it by just saying that i absolutely adored gone girl i think it is popular cinema to its finest aspect of course it was based on a novel but david fincher very much uh embodied the what what the novel was about the underlying themes about it and also made it very fincherian is that how you des- if it's not I, I think it should be yes yeah. fincherian so it this this picture very much fits into his overall oeuvre yeah and it was just a a great cinematic experience i really enjoyed it, it was long but it didn't feel long it didn't feel long i think partially because it feels like it's it's really two movies exactly. in, in one and you get uh, so you, you kind of get this break about an hour in where it becomes a completely different. Film. Right. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned that it it fits into Fincher's oeuvre, uh, even though it's you know from uh, a book as a source mm-hmm. material. I think Gillian Flynn did a really great job here with uh, adapting, screen, her, own adapting book, yeah. her own book into a screenplay. I have I have not read the book, so I can't compare the two, but. Um, just the dialogue fits very well. There's, uh, things that we'll get into a little later, uh, regarding that, that I, I think just work remarkably, um, really, really great stuff here. Just right on the page. Well, and this isn't really about the movie, but in, about our culture reaction to it. Of course, it's David Fincher's highest grossing picture at about 150 million. So it made even more than the social network. But I heard about the picture mostly from a lot of my female coworkers, who they, it, they they would even go some would go see it by themselves really so it, it spoke to i guess female viewers and that would be something that we'd be interested in hearing from you guys about uh after the fact but i i always am intrigued by the audience reaction and who the audience is and that well, seemed to be my experience you know that that's something one of my very first uh reactions after seeing it was trying to grapple with uh, i think fincher gets um sort of blamed rightly or wrongly as being misogynist a lot of a lot of times um with the way that he treats female characters or uh just having very few you know in his in his pictures right. he's very much or they a, wind up with their head in a box yeah he's very much a male centric mm-hmm. sort of you know that's that's where he's coming from right um but this film kind of it felt like at the same time it's reinforcing that and completely going against it as well well and so as far as the audience of you know young women married young women it it starts off and not you know we'll we'll get to spoilers here in a little bit but it starts off very much reinforcing the idea of almost having a very pro-feminist message and then it goes in a completely different direction and then the feminism being uh in, being uh espoused is is a very different sort of empowerment mm-hmm. yeah. so i think I, yeah. I think that's what it explains its strength well, appeal and but i don't even know if it it to me at the end kind of just feels like he's not ex- or, you know him and uh Jillian Flynn are not necessarily exploring either feminism or masculinity, but using them as tools to ultimately manipulate the audience. Right. 
And there's so many times where uh, they're doing something, uh, they're presenting you with information that falls in one of those camps, but ultimately it's because they're driving the story. To okay. A, well that, to okay. That intrigues me. So you thought that this was less a commentary on men, women, marriage in the media and more just a suspense story that was using those as props. Um, a little bit. I mean, I, I think there's definitely commentary to be had on, on those things, but I, what I'm saying is I don't think it's necessarily, um, that's the end goal. Um, because at, at the end of the day, this is still a, a little bit of a, a, I don't want to say schlocky thriller, but it has, you know, that sort of, it, it, it's definitely doing stuff where it's, uh, going into that territory of the, uh, you know, paper, paperback, uh, airplane novel. Well, and so that's the thing is I'm going to completely disagree with you and say it's very much a schlocky thriller. It's, it's, uh, but that's what, but, but self-aware, but, but, but self-aware. It's, I think, yeah. I think it's playing with that more than it's. Yeah playing into it like well it's, and that speaks to his gifts as a filmmaker is that he is dealing with something that winds up being extremely contrived mm-hmm. and if you were to really think about it it would just fall apart but you're so invested in the story itself and that's that's where fincher succeeds in this that's where his uh, forebear alfred hitchcock who we'll talk about later that's where he always succeeded that's something that christopher nolan does very well is if you think about it after the fact there's there there's a there's some plot holes, but you're not really ever bothered by it while you're watching it. Well, it's it's the suspension of disbelief, and there is enough there to draw you into this story that you are willing to go by the rules of the story. Now, another aspect of this movie that I think we can talk about without getting into spoilers are the uh, performances, and so yeah. uh, this is uh, starring Ben Affleck, who is an actor who has taken a lot of flack for his skills. I think the way I've described him before is if it's on the script, you know how sometimes on scripts they'll have the character's name and then under, under and underneath in parentheses they'll say angry? He'll be able to play angry. And it's one of those things, you'll be, he'll, he'll, it'll be angry. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to, it, it, it's very much dictated by what the script says. You're not going to get anything different so, from that. But I think that was fine in this. How, well, do you think that's what he's doing here, though? Um, or, or do you think he, ben he brings anything else to it? Here's the thing about this character and then Ben Affleck is this character is not as smart as he thinks he is or we're led to believe. He is a New York ba- he is a Missouri-born, New York-based journalist, so presumably he has some semblance of intellectualism. But at the same time, once it starts to hit the fan— the proverbial fan, as it were, he's just completely lost and got a deer in the headlights. And once he's the media is trained on him, it, I it, it's it, he's I, being I exposed he's, as being less smart than he I is. I mean, I think he's kind of that way from the start. You do have this uh, sort of we're bouncing between um, the, I guess, present day uh, timeline and then these flashbacks mm-hmm. uh, that are happening, kind of showing uh, the relationship between these two characters, Nick Dunn and Amy Dunn. You know, Amy being the titular gone girl and uh, trying to figure out, you know, what happened. Did did Nick murder his wife? And I think from the very beginning, you kind of have this uh, confused, not quite, um, you know, he's definitely not quite above everyone else in his ability to. Um, control the situation of being, you know, he he's being very quickly accused of perhaps murdering his wife Mm -hmm. and um, which is, again, that's a commentary on our culture in the media is if you have a missing woman and the husband's still there, then. But but to the performance, I would say I was really impressed with with Affleck in this, um, you know, upon first viewing, you know, what several months ago back in mm-hmm. uh, seeing it when it came out in theaters, uh, rewatched it a couple of times um, this week just in trying to prepare. And one of those times I went ahead and watched uh, Fincher's commentary because of. All, you know, sometimes commentary can be a terrible, boring thing. Fincher always brings some great little tidbits insight into, if nothing else, his process. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I found really fascinating was the way that he really gave a lot of credit to the actors, all of the actors for working as collaborators. And um, Affleck being one of those, like he mentioned just how easy it Affleck makes some of these moments seem but it's all in subtle nuance of the face of really he's doing a lot by not doing a lot. Well, and I'm not dismissing Ben Affleck in any way when I say this, but I think that uh, the the true merit of the performance was in the casting is mm-hmm. David Fincher's go to actor is Brad Pitt. And even though Brad Pitt is from Missouri, 
or he's born in Oklahoma. He was raised in Missouri. I don't. I couldn't see Brad Pitt in this. I couldn't see no, I, I Matt Damon, didn't. Mark Wahlberg, Bradley Cooper, Christian Bale. Any of those. But, I couldn't see any you, of those guys. But could in you this. have seen Ben Affleck in this before seeing Ben Affleck in this? And again, that speaks to David Fincher's quality is if you're just looking at the merits of a person's ability, their range, et cetera, et cetera, then you're not going to get what you need. Ben Affleck, he, like I said, he is very much this character. Mm-hmm. What about a guy like Tyler Perry? I mean, Tyler okay, Perry. Yes, exactly. Tanner Whenever you Bolt. said that at first, I thought Tyler Perry, like Tyler Perry, was, was Tyler, he, not, he was he an option for the main star? Uh, no, I thought, I thought you were thinking like Tyler Perry as a director. He does great casting. No, uh, Tyler Perry is Tanner Bolt in this. Right. I was blown away. I mean, I I'll admit, like I almost decided I was going to recommend uh, Diary of a Mad Black Woman as my recommendation uh-huh. for, for this week, because I really love that movie. Like uh, it, it's crazy melodrama. But uh, pretty great. The the other things of the Medea ilk, not not so much. It's but, one. It, it, yeah, it's not earnest level quality <laughs> as far as it's, multiple sequels. Uh, but uh, speaking this, of which, this is a complete derailment. So I apologize. Great, but would you thanks. say that there's a Medea cinematic universe? <laughs> there's. Yeah, I think that is something we. You know, let's take it to Tyler Perry. Let's say we have this idea. Let's expand because there's definitely an audience there. Uh-huh. No, absolutely. Okay. But anyway, complete back, derailment. Back, back on track. Um, but, you know, Tyler Perry is one of those guys that I haven't necessarily had a problem with in the past. I haven't seen him in much beyond his playing Medea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was definitely a little like just seeing him in trailers was a little confused as to how he fits into Fincher's world. And I thought he did an amazing job. He He's perfect as this. Uh, sort of silver-tongued but not slimy uh, defense lawyer. He's a he's a total badass boss, which is who that defense lawyer is. And so again, I'm going to give credit to David Fincher in here, and that that was just very smart, unexpected casting. Yeah, and, that, and I think it, it. Well, I mean, he's he's a huge guy. He's he's a charming guy. Uh, he's and he's not just he doesn't just do Medea. He owns his own company Mm -hmm. so he's so he's clearly a he's a businessman a successful businessman so he just david fincher knew who tyler perry was and said okay tyler perry i want that for this character and it worked marvelously well and he said in the the commentary that even that whenever he approached perry for this tyler perry was initially apprehensive he was you know not sure that uh he was the right choice for it but fincher obviously saw something beyond that um and, and i think across the board let's just go over the cast real quick so uh we've, we've hit ben affleck and tyler perry we've got roseman pike as amy dunn the uh the wife um we've got desi collings played by neil patrick harris who is this uh who are yeah two characters who i think we need to talk about in the spoiler section yeah really yeah convey. but he's he's uh, an ex-boyfriend of amy mm-hmm. who uh comes into play in a few ways uh we've got uh, Carrie Coon playing Margot Dunn, who's Nick Dunn's twin sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got a great sort of kind of a lath- laconic been there, done that aspect to it, which keeps things earthy. And then whenever well, things go bad, it, it she, whenever she loses it, she that has was- she has this ability to she almost seems too um, too snarky and too uh, on the nose in in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But as as it plays out, you kind of see why. why well, that and it's is. one of those things. I think the movie needed that. And yeah, and and I there are definitely laughs to be had there. But she she holds it really well. Mm-hmm. And once you kind of get in, you drink the Kool Aid and get in and see what's going right, on. Man. Like it, it transcends even that. And her then, first movie, by the way. Really? Yeah. Is that true? She's a stage actress, but I believe it's her first huh. movie. Um, and then uh, Kim Dickens as uh, Detective Boney, which is a character that I would really like to get into later on. Right. Um, we've got Patrick Fugit as sort of her partner. Uh, we've got her police partner, not her, her life partner. Right. Her <laughs> police partner. We've got Noel Hawthorne as uh, Casey Wilson, who's sort of uh, Amy's best friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can't leave out Ellen Abbott, which is a character that's basically based on Nancy Grace, um, maybe an amalgamation of a few. But Nancy Grace feels like the main. Even if it's not Nancy Grace, exactly. It's the idea of Nancy. Very, Grace. very much so by uh, Missy Pyle. Very well. I mean, this entire cast, I don't think there's anyone who felt miscast or wrongly, you know, sort of placed in here. It it has a great uh, it's not quite an ensemble because the the focus is a little tighter than that. But just he really packs the world with. Um, these characters that even if they're smaller, they feel like they expand uh, the depth of of what of, of the world that we're living. Exactly. In. And to that point is each character is, you might say, a type. And he picked the absolute right 
actor to portray that type, to bring that type to life. And so the result is just a very good picture that if you are not going to listen to the spoiler section, I would absolutely recommend. But unless you have anything else to add. No, I, I think we should jump right in. Yeah, because so. I'm just champing at the bit to talk spoilers. Okay, so I will have listed in the show notes for this episode uh, where we get on to the next segment. So if you would like to skip the spoiler filled review that we're about to get into, uh, go ahead and check that skip forward. Uh, and we'll see you on the other side. When I was 10, I quit cello and the next book, amazing Amy became a prodigy. You play volleyball. I got caught freshman year. She made varsity. (laughs) Why didn't you have a dog? She got the dog. Puddles made her more relatable. Wow. I love your parents, but they really can be assholes. Nick. Sir. Hey, thanks for coming, man. No problem. Hey, sweetheart. (laughs) Big night for your mom. Would mean so much if you would talk to a few reporters, bloggers, give them a little Amy color. People want to hear from you. We can't stay long. Fantastic. 15 minutes tops. This is why I have my brownstone. My trust fund, I know I can't complain. Your parents literally plagiarized your childhood. No, they improved upon it and then peddled it to the masses. So, Hunter, I think this clip really distills the entire movie down into one, you know, nice, concise little nugget. This is the the thing that I kind of go back to as uh, my reference point for uh, why I why I like it so much, why I think it works so well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really uh, kind of highlights what's going on uh, with this movie, the way that as we later, you know, find, I think about an hour in, find out that uh, everything that we've seen in flashbacks is a fabrication of Amy Dunn's diary. And so much like her parents fabricated her childhood, she's fabricated her adult life in this fake diary that she made. Right. She fabricated this all in order to incriminate her husband for her murder whenever she's very much alive and well. Did you see this, quote, twist coming? I did. Um, It was not I mean, it it was still fairly late into that game. I think the the place where uh, where I picked up on it was whenever he pushes her, whenever there's that kind of assault on the Mm -hmm. uh, the banister of of the stairs. And it was I in rewatching. I was trying to figure out, like, what was it that that cued me into this? Because um, I didn't feel like there was necessarily anything it doesn't feel like he's showing his cards here mm-hmm. uh you know he's not doing some sort of cutesy tip of the hat to say oh hey, oh i'm gonna kill you you know well no i mean fincher's not doing a tip of the hat to say to say oh hey look all the clues are right. here now um but i think what it is is there's this motif throughout um particularly with uh in regard to amy and maybe her fabrication or her control over the story where you get a lot of these dissolves. Like anytime you're going into Amy's diary, you dissolve out and dissolve in. And so in this moment, in this intense moment, um, you have these quick fade to black fade back up dissolves, mm-hmm. uh, that just, they felt a little weird to me. And, you know, this is probably about 40, 45 minutes in the movie. And you've seen enough of it by that point. I think that's what key, you know, cued me that, uh, this, this feels like a fabrication because it sort of with those dissolves, uh, has that feeling, uh, of, of not quite being right, not quite being real, not, well, and not upon, quite playing in real time. Right. And upon first viewing, it can just be, okay, dream sequence time. Here's a dissolve. But mm-hmm. instead it actually, as you just said, created a, a world of fabrication. I've only seen it once. Whenever you saw back in, uh, when it came out in October yeah, of 2014, yeah. did you know about that there was going to be a twist? I, I mean, I think I knew maybe that there was a twist in that. You know, it's it's a mystery. So right. obviously there's going Could to be, be things twist, that yeah. are going to. I didn't know that uh, this was going to be the way it went. I didn't know that it was going to have such a sharp turn uh, when uh-huh. when it gets, you know, a third of the way through the movie. Well, this is this is uh, Hunter and his smug self-satisfaction. I saw it uh, a month or two ago. So it was okay. already streaming right when it just came out. And so I knew there was going to be a twist. I just didn't know what the twist was. Mm-hmm. And then I, I figured out, Oh, okay. She's still alive. And she just faked her death to try and incriminate him. And then, Oh, Hey, look at me. I'm so, I'm so smart. But anyway, um, the, so there was no visual cue for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that again, goes into 
how whenever you experience a movie, particularly a big blockbuster movie like this, you the the water cooler talk around is yeah. inevitably going to affect the experience. So even if David Fincher is trying to cocoon you into, okay, you're just going to see this movie and that's going to be all you know about, all you experience about it, we don't live in that world anymore. Which, yeah, you know, it's, unless it's, unless you see it on, you know, opening weekend, perhaps. Um, Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, so this is something that I kind of hinted at, alluded at earlier. Um, that whole kind of first hour that when we're we're seeing everything from the perspective of Amy's fake diary, there's a lot of these moments of dialogue that feel very cheesy or lifetime movie or maybe coming from her diary. Uh, coming from her diary, but also also in the normal inter. I mean, there's stuff between um, Margot and Nick in you know the current mm-hmm. uh, July 5th. I, I think the right. first uh, the first day she's she's missing. Um, even where it feels that uh, it, it feels a little off or a little. It feels like it feels dialogue, bad. not people talking. It, it feels yeah, it feels bad, and I think that actually sort of lulls you into this sense of either either you're going to be in one of two places i feel either fincher has lost his game and he's actually like he's phoning this one in mm-hmm. or maybe you don't realize that and you're okay with it and this is you know you maybe you digest a lot of uh svu or um law and order you know those sorts of procedurals and this is right up your alley and you're and you're buying into it mm-hmm. either way it kind of sets you off on the wrong path. And see, I actually, I would probably more belong into the latter category if I felt like it was a procedural and then it's like, wait a minute, this is going to be the twist they were talking about. Is she all faked it? I think David, I, you know, I, I know David Fincher is smart enough to know that uh, the conversation surrounding this movie and then not just the conversation surrounding this movie, but the, the culture in which it exists is essentially ours. Mm-hmm. And so he is taking what we know going into the movie and then using that to create the Very world. much. I, it's, not, it's not self-contained. Yeah. And I, I think, once again, we got to give some credit to Gillian Flynn as well. Uh-huh, absolutely. Um, for like, I, I think she's right, right there with him in, in this, in it's, and, and the thing that I appreciate about it is it's commentary on, uh, sort of our current society with this 24 hour news cycle and these things, but it's not, it's not just a ham fisted condescending sort of like, Oh, this is what's ruining America. It's, you know, I think you get a little bit of bite, um, to it, but it's, also just using it to the advantage of making this kind of, you know, let's say schlocky uh, mystery movie, but using that, there's almost a meta uh, value to it Mm -hmm. of being self-aware and using it and using it as a tool and getting to a point where, I mean, we really get to some really messed up. I mean, by, by the third act of this movie, we're in some crazy, but but it never loses you in that regard. And so this, okay, Hunter, turning into pretentious film snob so everyone be warned so so you just we have a spoiler warning and we have a pretentious film snob yeah, and warning. You're, you're going from the svu the the law and order procedural viewer into the film into snob. the, we're, into the we're transforming i am they exist in me as one but to me this is very much a commentary on in 2014-15 the world we live in today men don't know who what they're supposed to be women don't really know what they're supposed to be and we have a culture that is just berating us with noise and uh tr- trying to inject its value system onto us even though its value system is solely just to make noise and get attention so you have people who are under assault from that and the consequence of that is violence violence against each other not knowing who you are and that's that's kind of what i took away from this is it's very much a uh a examination of how in the absence of really a clear definable moral path people revert to a childlike state and then they revert to a violent state is that pretentious film snobbery or maybe i mean i didn't i didn't read it that way or I, i read the first half in the uh i think there is commentary on um, what it means to be a man or to be a woman, mm-hmm. um, you know, in our in our present day society in, you know, a lot of things like down to and this is where like it could be cliche, but I think it's playing with the cliche. You have Nick Dunn, who's a, a writer for some men's mm-hmm. journal or health magazine. Right. And then the which economy just collapses. So, um, yeah. And, and then you use the economy as a so sort of a, a way. At, in yeah. Essence. But then but then you've also got this whole idea of the cool girl. 
um, which is this idea that Amy explores in her diary, also in just her uh, sort of inner monologue or, or voiceover mm-hmm. that we get, um, which seems to be this character that has been fabricated, that she she claims she fabricated to get uh, Nick to to kind of otherwise he would have never noticed her. That is her claim. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if that's necessarily true, though. What did what was your take on the cool girl? She uh, she claims basically Amy claims that she is pretending to be this character um, in order to attract Nick and that it has it is in no way her. Do you do you buy into that? Do you believe that? You know, it's one of those things, given that we saw one of her previous boyfriends and what she did to her previous boyfriend, that, of course, being is turning him into a, uh, a, a, a like a, a sex assault uh, perpetrator. I think from the very start that she, you know, was a manipulative person. And so I'm not going to say she was completely contrived. There always has to be a, a, an essence of reality. But I think, yeah, by and large, she just made up her personality. But then I guess that goes to the question of why. But given that she was so high on the high on the, you know, socioeconomic scale compared to him, and it may just be so they could have a movie. I mean, it may just be uh, as simple as that. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe we're we're pushing at you know we're in Truman Show at the walls. We're yeah, getting exactly. to the the edge of. Uh, but you know, I I think there is there there are interesting little tidbits here where um, when Nick and, Nick and Amy first meet, the very first thing that Nick says to her is something about uh, you better better look out where you leave that monk brewed uh, Belgian beer or something, and they're uh, they're drinking Lef and I can't think of the name of the other. The other they're they're both drinking Belgian beers, uh, which neither are actually brewed by monks, but that's yeah, that's has another. Anyway, uh, there's this great moment uh, when she is has been taken in by Desi. Desi Collings, played by Neil right. Patrick Harris, and he's sort of he first brings her into his uh, lake house and he's showing her around and he opens. She's in the living room. He opens the fridge. He's saying anything you want, anything you need. Let me know. He opens the fridge and it's just no attention drawn to it. It's out of focus in the background. But both of those beers are fully stocked in the fridge. And I found that like an interesting tell into her manipulation. Also, just a nice little way to. Uh, add add a little bit of information in the background, you know, uh, and, and Fincher give us as much depth as possible with as few words. Well, or clues. it speaks to her character and it also speaks to his character of, you know, despite his fame and fortune and wealth, the Neil Patrick Harris character, not really having an independent personality. It's all it's willing all to bend to become it's, it's almost he's becoming the cool guy or the whatever whatever that analog is is there um but do you think do you think we ever see who amy really is um well i mean actions speak louder than words as the cliche goes and so i think she's just a crazy manipulative monster of a person and so even if there's not a moment where like oh that's who she is it's just what she does i mean and so she's trying to control the situation back to kind of the cultural reaction to it and i know i keep going back to this but I think it's fascinating is the first hour is it plays with our feminist victimhood expectations mm-hmm. of we think he's a guy who murdered his wife and we hate Ben Affleck. And, and she's kind of the Hitchcock blonde. In exactly. A lot of well, and, and an innocent uh, an innocent girl who has been uh, murdered because her husband wanted to screw around with a college student. Then when we get to the twist and it turns out she's alive, she becomes a very she becomes a symbol of empowerment. Yeah. But it's you know, she's freaking crazy. You know, so it's 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 I, I just love how deftly they played with our expectations of femininity, particularly in uh, present day is she goes from a victim to empowerment. But in the empowerment that she becomes, she goes completely 180 and becomes a villain just because of how far she goes. But do you think that's working against a do you think that is in any way misogynist or uh, no, it, it very well may be, but I think it happened nevertheless. And it's and it's, but it's it may be misogynist th- as a commentary. But as far as creating a fully fledged, fascinating character, mm-hmm. it's very progressive because we have a we have a female supervillain who is completely controlling everything. Yeah, and that's kind of exactly where I landed on this. I mean, this is not a movie that. Um, ends on a up note or ends on a it's sort of if anything if we're going to put it in a box she's sort of the anti-hero who 
wins in the end, at least in the end of the movie. There's no saying like there's definitely a story that's going to continue on past this. And maybe in Gone Girl 2, Bodie, Bodie catches up with her and really uh, puts together everything that that happens. She obviously was on her uh, was on Amy's tail whenever they're going through that mm-hmm. uh, interview process, you know, when she's still covered in blood and she's trying to. But what can you do? Together. I mean, and that was her thing is what can you do? She doesn't have any. Yeah. She doesn't and, have the evidence to well, go after. And, and so there is that flip where she uh, Amy almost becomes the uh, she's the villain, but she's also sort of an antihero. Not necessarily that you're rooting for, but um, you don't I, I don't think. Uh, anyone wants her dead necessarily no. anyone and uh she has taken uh Nick her husband as a slave almost she or as a captive mm-hmm. you know she starts out on the one end where she is the Hitchcock blonde and then basically reverses by the end uh the roles where if if anything Nick Dunn is the the Hitchcock blonde i mean because there are uh, everything that Hitchcock did right in you know just amazing uh, cinematic technique and, and building suspense and all this, he didn't necessarily treat women great. I mean, they, they were they were again props to the overarching story. Yeah, and and I think Hitchcock would argue that he felt that all actors were props. I mean, right. he said as much. But you know, something like Vertigo, which I think is a great film, has a lot of problems with gender. In like there there are some weird sort of rapey things going on with, mm-hmm. with Jimmy Stewart in that movie, and so this this flips that completely and. Uh, really like it's not a, a squeaky clean sort of like female empowerment film, but I think being a genre movie that it is being, you know, this sort of mystery and, and that sort of thing, uh, it does some great thing, things in subverting what we've seen before and what we expect. Yeah. I would say it's a female empowerment film, but the only way to make it make $150 million and sell millions and millions of dollars worth of books is to make it a, Schlocky contrived thriller. And, and I'm fine with that. I mean, it's a very well executed Schlocky contrived exactly. thriller. We've talked about the character. We have not talked about the actress, that being Rosamund Pike, who was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar. You in the past, well, I'll let you use the analogy you've used compared to Laura Linney. Oh, well, this is actually something I, I cannot take credit for this. Uh, Sam Van Holgren, the producer of Film Spotting and former co host, used to call Laura Linney an age appropriate character delivery device. And it's something that I've just sort of stolen from him, reappropriated from him as any any actor who I think can do the job but doesn't bring anything else beyond that. Insert is, 30, 40, 50 yes. year old male or female. Yes. Here. Was she that in this? Roseman Pike? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so at all. Did you feel that way? No, I didn't. Um, I was just wondering if even if she was that, if that would again, you know, speak to work to the advantage of the film as much like with Ben Affleck, because I would say he's kind of that age appropriate delivery no, vehicle. I thought, I thought she was a great chameleon in a lot of ways. And, you know, I hadn't seen Roseman Pike in a whole lot before. Like I had seen her in uh, The World's End and maybe a couple other things, but I'm not, you know, I wasn't extremely familiar with her going in. I recognized her face and uh, that sort of thing. But I thought she she dominated this. She oh, did. No, absolutely. She did exactly what like I believed her as this this Amy Dunn character um, could because I don't think any other actor could have played the Ben Affleck part just because that's him. Do you think any other actress could could have really done this? I, I mean, off the top of my head, I haven't thought about it, but off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone. I'm sure I'm sure there's someone out there. But. Oh, yeah. And, and this is where we get into a film fantasy land. But I think a early 90s Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes, would have been, I could see yeah. right off the heels of like Batman Returns. Definitely. Yeah, she, um, that, that's kind of what this performance felt like. Uh, yeah, no, that that's a good like. I, I could see that. But yeah, I, I thought Rosamund Pike was great. She I mean, really. And I think to to that, you know, being this antihero, being this villainous bitch in a lot of ways, you still kind of root for her. You want her you, you want her to get away from Desi mm-hmm. Collings. You want her to kind of succeed and not, you know, she's got that calendar with uh, different dates when she thinks she might kill herself to incriminate uh, Nick. You know, the, the final kind of death blow of mm-hmm. they'll find her in the river and Honestly, anytime like you see that, you see those post notes, I got like a little worried. Like I didn't want her to uh, to kill herself. I wanted her to somehow survive. You know, obviously, like this math equation doesn't reach a conclusion, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted her to survive and Nick to be free. And I guess it comes as close to a, it's messy, but it's close to a conclusion as it can. Uh, oh, well, and to this to that point about the conclusion, uh the the reaction I heard from 
from people after this is the ending in which they both decided that it's not so much they hate each other or love each other. It's just they're both kind of frightened of each other. And what I heard Do you about think she's frightened of him. Uh, OK, fine. Maybe not. I think the only advantage she has is a little bit of knowledge of who she really is. Like he might be the only person who's fully seen who she, she is maybe what. what she's afraid of is just the idea that uh that she's gonna have to continue staying on her toes which maybe she would have done anyway just because he's not going to be a victim forever he's gonna but try that's, something I maybe think, stupid I think that's, but he's I think that's her selfish you know drive less less her seeing him as anything that I think she thinks and, and rightly so probably that she's smarter than him and can manipulate and get you know it's just he he's kind of seen her cards and so uh, is going to be more aware of it. Okay. Um, overall, what do you think the character wanted? Of of Amy? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if she knew what she wanted. I think she, uh, you know, I think there was a bit of, there's definitely a bit of like jealousy and it's a bit of a revenge picture in uh, ultimately uh, what I guess puts this all in motion is her catching him in a lie um, in a few ways. You know, you have, you have that mirroring of the snow scene with the sugar scene, mm-hmm. you know, the snow scene with the girl that he's cheating on her with. Um, I think that maybe puts, sets the ball rolling. I think she's always been a sociopath though. Exactly. Because of based on what she did to the Neil Patrick Harris character yeah, and then and, her former boyfriend. And so I don't think there's ever really an objective of like, once she reaches, there's never going to be a point where she reaches it and she's satisfied with life. Yeah. She wasn't a sympathetic uh, person who became a supervillain. She's a supervillain who just needs little always, things to set always her a off. Supervillain. Yeah. Which is, you know, the, uh, the, the basis of any strong marriage, I think, is to marry a supervillain because <laughs> right. you're not going to screw around because you know she will kill you. Yeah. So overarching, your opinion of this film? Uh, I mean, I, I really love this movie. The more I watch it, um, the more I find a love about it. I mean, I think uh, it's not trying to be a domestic drama glimpse into a real life. You know, it's obviously heightened, you know, several times. But uh, I think it really it it does a great job sort of delivering what we want and expect and then delivering it over delivering it to a to a point where we almost feel icky for wanting it in the first place. Um, And Fincher's just I mean, he does a great job. He's uh, really a a master in every frame of this film. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I have very few things to complain about. Honestly, one of my few complaints would probably be uh, Kim Dickens and some of the other characters with their uh, accents is a little rough. Hey, look at us. We're from the Midwest. uh, Yeah. Well, and especially when you have like Ben Affleck and Carrie Coon as two twins from Missouri. I I, I don't think Margo ever left Missouri. They don't have accents at all. But, uh, oh, look, the detective does and the the bumbling idiot neighbor does. Yeah, it was actors acting. But that's, you know, nitpicky. Um, That's that's one of the few things that I found. I was like, that doesn't seem right. But well, and again, you know, it's it's uh, mainstream cinema. It's not. An independent picture that's trying to be super authentic is trying to create that world. There, I don't think there's anything to authenticity here other than like, I think they get the Ellen Abbott character right. You know, the whole sort of news circus frenzy right. thing right. No, absolutely right. Um, And the only authenticity bust for me was whenever the Ben Affleck character said, hey, let's go to Outback. I want a steak. And that just that felt really <laughs> offensive to me because one, two reasons. One, Outback has magnificent steaks. And two, like that's the only place to eat in the Midwest is a chain restaurant restaurant this, so uh, that was the authenticity bust and frankly offensive to me well and, and also you know as a sponsor of war starts at midnight um little little concern that the product placement's stretching a little far we want to keep them in our uh in our own absolutely world um and i concur with you that this is a magnificent picture i would uh, recommend it uh, unequivocally, it's really a testament to the three puppeteers and each one of them doing their own thing but it, it congeals into a larger whole that being Gillian Flynn the author David Fincher the director and then Rosamund Pike slash the character Amy Dunn uh, embodying the puppeteer over as a character of the entire film so I would again once been absolutely recommend it speaking of recommendations if I am to see this film again what should I be drinking I'm glad you asked Hunter because I have a pick that I think uh, really fits well so I mentioned earlier that you know the conversation starter between Nick and Amy their very first meeting is over uh, Belgian beer 
um, allegedly brewed by monks, although not really brewed by monks. Uh, so, and also there's, we didn't really cover this, but there's a lot of bourbon being consumed in this movie, a whole lot of bourbon. So I have a, uh, I have a recommendation that I think kind of brings those two together very nicely. It's the Belgian style oak aged quad by chalk brewery. Uh, they're out of Krebs, Oklahoma. So kind of in our backyard. Um, it's sort of an obvious pick, uh, as I already mentioned, the monk brewed Belgian, uh, beer, uh, featured in the film, uh, a, a quadruple is a monk brewed style. You know, uh, this would be considered an Abbey ale, um, because it's not actually brewed by monks just like the others. Um, but so you have that, uh, you also have with it being aged in barrels, uh, you know, the, the bourbon tie in, um, I'll say that this beer, uh, if you're used to drinking uh, a quad, it's going to be a little less fruity than, uh, than your typical quad, I think a lot of that comes from the aging. Um, it's got a little bit more bite to it, but it's it's really delicious. Uh, one little word of warning: uh, if if you don't like a boozy beer, this might not be for you. Uh, you know, it's eleven percent alcohol by volume. Uh, also, a single twelve ounce bottle will set you back about as much as a nice six pack of uh, of craft beer. So there's that as well. But if you're striving to be that cool girl, this beer is bound to turn a couple of hipster beer snob heads. So uh, I would recommend it. It's it's a great beer, a perfect pairing for this film. Uh, that's the Belgian style oak aged quad from Chalk. And while I would never dream of entrenching on your domain as far as uh, beer choices, I would actually recommend Foster's, which you should be drinking while you have your carryout Outback Steakhouse <laughs> steak and baked potatoes, which you consume while watching Gone Girl. That's okay. what I would recommend. Okay, so you can either go to uh, what what size can? Are we talking the, the big man can? Uh, man can or yeah, man can. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You, gotta, you gotta go. With of course, can. if you don't have a draft in your house, then what kind of human being are you? Right. A draft of fosters. Okay. Well, Gone Girl is currently available on Blu-ray and DVD or for rent or purchase digitally, basically anywhere. If you've seen Gone Girl, crack open your lovely skull and spool in your brains and tell us what you're thinking and how you're feeling. And by that, I mean email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around. We'll be back after the break to discuss Hitchcock's airs. If you were to go to Rotten Tomatoes and look up Gone Girl and to read the reviews, it wouldn't take long before you would see someone reference this as a Hitchcockian suspense thriller. His name, Hitchcock, has become so entrenched in the cinematic culture and indeed the pop culture at large that it's getting to the point wherever it means just a synonym for suspense. When in many ways, Hitchcock means so much more than that, particularly if you are a student of his films. And so for our special feature segment today... Uh, Chris and I are going to discuss Alfred Hitchcock's heirs and if they exist or if it's even possible to exist. And I'll forewarn you, dear listener, that this will be more like a promotional featurette at the end of a DVD as opposed to a Peter Jackson-esque, really, three-hour-long documentary where you're getting a lot of insight. This is just a very high-level conversation. So, Chris, to you, whenever I say Hitchcocking, what does that mean? I mean, I, I think you're right. Uh, suspense is probably the first thing that comes to mind for me. It could go a little deeper, you know, it, or it does, you know, in um, the, you know, a good misdirect. A lot of times I think of as Hitchcockian and you get several of those in Gone Girl, um, a, you know, a way of manipulating the audience, manipulating the way an audience feels. But generally that all ties back into suspense. Well, and I love that you said manipulation, particularly in reference to Gone Girl, is Alfred Hitchcock really, he, he was just so savvy as far as how people were going to intake his movies and how, and by intake, I mean I-N-T-A-K-E, how they were going to consume his films and then mani manipulate them because of that, that I'm not sure any director can match. And that's why, of course, he was the master. There have been many directors before and since who may have established the cinematic language 
more than he has, like D.W. Griffin or John Ford. You see their influence in more pictures, but I don't think there's any director who just as far as messing with people... Well, I, I think it, it so much represents of, that as much as he did. Yeah. I mean, so much of if you one of my favorite pastimes when I'm bored and have nothing to do is just look for Hitchcock interviews on YouTube. Like they're they're all over absolutely. The place. No, absolutely. And, and there's always like 10 nuggets of insight into a how he approached filmmaking, how he approached the audience, how he approached actors, you know, the the whole gamut. Like he was very aware of every piece of and and how all those fit together, how what an audience was to expect, all of those things. Like, that's why he was able to pull and, off what he and, did. And here's another thing. It always gave him so much pleasure whenever someone figured it out or if they didn't figure it out, they asked him about it and then he could explain it. Mm-hmm. He was someone who loved making movies, even if it was a very dark picture. You mentioned earlier Vertigo or Psycho. Um, they're fun. Mm-hmm. They're fun movies to watch. And even though I enjoyed Gone Girl, I wouldn't say it was fun so much as just I enjoy, it was an entertaining movie. I enjoyed I, the experience. I think I think there is some fun and some revelry and some. I mean, honestly, I think Psycho is probably the closest that I could think of in as far as that that hard misdirect that um, sort of. Bi- well, there's no other movie in I would say in history that has as dramatic a, a mm-hmm. misdirect as that. Mm-hmm. But then you're left with uh, you're left with a character who you're not really sure. You know, you shouldn't really root for him, but you it's you're. The audience is left not really sure what to what to do, how to react, how to uh, approach their relationship with with this character. And I think you have a lot of that going on in these uh, the second and third act of Gone Girl. I believe we mentioned this earlier. Um, David Fincher and Chris Nolan, two directors who I admire very much, but they very much represent the the kind of ethos of modern filmmaking and that everything has to be very very serious mm-hmm. and so the the skill of like gone girl of the dark knight is that even when things probably get a little bit absurd you're so entrenched and excited by what's going on that you don't notice it with hitchcock it was the same way but it had an element of fun so whereas they're more serious and you're so invested in it because of the serious nature of it with hitchcock it was oh this is still th- you you feel safe almost until he screws with well it it's, yeah it's, he also has plenty of fun at the viewer's expense as well um so i don't know like so to, to talk about like is there an air um i would say i would say there's people that you could point to such as fincher who have hitchcockian tropes to their their directing i mean i would say something like zodiac is probably the closest we get i mean talk about just pure suspense that movie just gives me like thinking about that basement scene with the poster guy mm-hmm. gives me the willies just like thinking about it right now um there he has a great way of making a very taut suspenseful film but i don't you know i don't think it's like full-blown hitchcock uh and then you've got someone like brian de palma who is actively trying to be hitchcock and almost by trying to do that he's not you know well, what I mean? and, no, and that's 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 a good point. To me, I think the X factor, even though his like we said, his name is synonymous with suspense. To me, the X factor is forgive me for repeating myself, but the fun he's having fun directing. And so, I would actually say, if there's any heir to Hitchcock, it would actually be Quentin Tarantino, because even if he's not doing a, he hasn't. I don't think ever done a suspense per se. Even when he's doing something ultra violent. Uh, ultra action packed, et cetera, et cetera. You can always tell that this is a man who's enjoying his job. Do you does think, that make Does that make sense? I don't that, know. I don't know if I, I. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. I don't know if I'd call him an heir as much as a kindred spirit. Maybe mm-hmm. at that. That's that's as close as I would be willing. Like I think they do similar things, but to a much different uh, end. Well, um, actually, another some more people that who I'd add to that conversation, even though Quentin Tarantino's louder about it, would be uh, Sam Raimi. And he kind of went in a different direction, became more mainstream with the Spider-Man pictures and other things. But he's I, but, I would say he's more squarely focused on the comedy. Like the comedy is such a strong. Piece I mean, in, yes and no. Have you ever seen a simple plan? He did that. I, no, that that was that was suspenseful, but it still had the absurd, you know, the kind of the absurd Ramy S thing, mm-hmm. um, which is Hitchcock in many ways. And he actually wears a suit. um, to set as an homage homage to Hitchcock. And then other people, this might be controversial as the Coen brothers, hmm. because I do think that the Coen brothers, even, I could, like I could something see like that. Fargo. I, I could see that. Yeah. With, because yeah, they, I don't think you can pin them down to one specific right. sort of style and that is their style. But yeah, I, I could definitely see because I, I feel like Fargo is a great example. I mean, with that opening, 
a little paragraph about uh, this is a true story, but we changed the names and all that, mm-hmm. like messing with the audience, messing with their expectation, all of that from the very beginning of that movie. And uh, there is a lot of comedy at the expense of the audience or comedy to uh, break up, you know, what's otherwise a pretty uh, gloomy, weird little, little film, you know, with you feed in wood chippers and right. all, yeah. everything that goes with it, all the violence. That, well, and if you were to describe it, you would describe the violence, but it's mm, really about more and, more and you that. even have, you know, got to be in some way an homage with the uh, uh, shower scene there mm-hmm. uh, where, where they yeah, kidnap absolutely. kidnapper. Um, so I, I would say of these that you've, you've laid out, Coen brothers are the ones that I would say most directly, like almost align. But at the same time, I don't think you can just pigeonhole them in, in that either. You and I are getting ready to do something historic, which probably should have been done since the, the Hitchcock era. And certainly after he died is we're going to define what Hitchcockian means. I think that's what you and I should do right now, because do, do like, we need to do a quick Google search to make sure this hasn't been done. Well, I mean, it's one of those things I don't think I, it's been defined to me in the popular culture as just suspense insert suspense mm-hmm. here. Like he was the only one who ever did suspense. It wasn't that it, it wasn't it's a that. synonym. It. It's a synonym when you're right. It's just, he did it better. And so I would say that Hitchcockian, to me, would mean suspense, yes, but that's just one aspect. It also has to—you have to feel like the director's having fun with what he's doing, mm-hmm. to me. Um, he, he, knows what he, he knows the audience, he knows the reaction, so he's manipulating them in that regard. And then uh, also he knows how to play—to that, to that point, he knows how to play with audience expectations with actors— yeah, and the not just actors but movie stars because the things he did with movie stars are I would say are unprecedented. And I think actually that goes back to Tarantino uh, taking some some movie stars he's created, but other ones he's adopted and then played with their your expectations. Yeah, but of them. but still, I think I don't know. I I have a hard time. I I think I'm never going to accept that Tarantino is Hitchcockian in any way because he's doing the same thing but completely different. In if that's possible, like Tarantino's almost in an alternate universe, uh, doing you know playing with the same. Well, how do you how do you feel about that definition of Hitchcockian? Do you think that that's fair? Is there I, anything? I think I think that's fair. I, I mean, but I think with that definition, uh, it kind of proves that the only person who can be Hitchcockian was Hitchcock. Um, so you can maybe get homage, you can maybe get subtle things that, that match, that line up in a certain way, but I don't think anyone ever has or ever will do what Hitchcock did again, the way that he did. That's the, and that's the conclusion I had is that there'll never be another Hitchcock. But I think that as a, as a kind of film watching culture, we need to expand the definition because uh, I think it allows us to appreciate modern filmmakers more and then certainly him uh, as more as well. And to that point, uh, what is your definition of Hitchcockian? Does Alfred Hitchcock have any ears? We'd love to hear it. So shoot us an email at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. Yep, no joke. How much I'm glad you're here. Though the second half's long gone. You better will be shifting in recommendation time again uh what do you got i hope it's something mocking and massacring the media actually no it's mocking and massacring marriage my recommendation today is alfred hitchcock's lone comedy as far as i know from 1940 mr and mrs smith this is not any way affiliated with the mr and mrs smith from 2005 where uh, directed by Doug Lyman, where Brangelina first started bumping uglies, but rather a picture uh, starring the great Carol Lombard, who arguably, if she wasn't the greatest film comedian, she was certainly during her time the most uh, the most prolific and the most effective. Um, and not to get dark, but this was she. W- this was before a tragic death uh, in, I believe, 1942-43. But anyway, this is, as I said, the lone Alfred Hitchcock comedy, and. Maybe I wasn't watching with a sophisticated enough eye, but from what I recall when seeing it, there was nothing that struck me as as Hitchcockian in the filming. 
because even though whenever we had our conversation just a second ago, we were very much about his themes, he he was also a very cinematic director. He really knew how to work the camera, and I don't really recall anything from that uh, in this picture. Honestly, as I, it's not all that funny, and it's not it's not the greatest movie ever. But I think you need to watch it just to see somebody like him outside of his comfort zone, his proverbial comfort zone, and just to see the results of it. And it, uh, as I said, it is a comedy of manners uh, surrounding the institution of marriage. So maybe you'll get more of it than I did, but I would certainly recommend it just as a f- cinematic experience. Well, this is actually, I believe, your first recommendation that I've actually heard of. I'm a little disappointed that you didn't bring it up uh, on the last show where we talked about uh, serious directors attempting comedy. How do you just real quickly? How do you think it fits in there? Um, it's 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 not it's not just capital B bad. It's not a disaster. Actually, uh, we ta- the point we made last time was that whenever directors try and a- apply their style to comedy, that's when it fails. This he didn't try and uh, apply his style to the comedy at all. He just tried to film it, and the result is it's not again capital B bad. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a movie. It's kind of bland. It's uh, it's solid B. Okay. But again, it's but again, it's an uh, you know an important milestone in the Hitchcock canon, so I'd recommend it for that reason. Okay, uh, my recommendation actually does take on the media a little bit. It's uh, Billy Wilder's 1951 picture, Ace in the Hole, starring Kirk Douglas. Uh, have you seen this picture? Absolutely, yes, sir. Okay, of course you have. I think this movie has a lot of parallels with Gone Girl in uh, kind of how it deals with the media. I think it's definitely uh, making commentary, more direct commentary on the media with uh, this whole media circus that it explores. Uh, Kirk Douglas plays a newspaper man who's kind of starts out the the film um, sort of on the ropes a little bit. You know, he I think he thinks higher of himself as as a journalist than anyone else does. And he comes across this opportunity to exploit a man in peril for his own gain. All of a sudden it becomes reporters uh, coming out and living out uh, in the desert where this man is stuck in a cave and spectators coming out and people are selling, I think, I don't know if it's t-shirts or, you know, it's sort of the, this almost branded paraphernalia. And so uh, I think this is maybe uh, it's a little more biting in its uh, message about media, but uh, I find that Ace in the Hole being a movie that's what 60 over 60 years old is still amazingly refreshing or amazingly relevant to our current, even maybe even more relevant to our current media landscape than it was even back then. That's Billy Wilder's ace in the hole. Uh, you can find it on a really beautiful uh, criterion blu-ray right now. So I would recommend you uh, watch it that way. Magnificent. And uh, the only way I've seen Mr. And Mrs. Smith was on midnight at Turner classic movies. So I would just go to the search bar at Turner classic movies and see where they're going to play it again. <laughs> of course you have. Exactly. <laughs> That concludes another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com. There you can find links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And if you like the show, help us out by rating it on iTunes. And if you hate the show, hate me, hate Chris, or just want to share your opinion with someone who may listen, please send that and all other comments to hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Music on this week's show comes from the album The Bold, The Balloon, and The Family by Rubens Accomplice. Check them out online at rubensaccomplice.com. Tune in next time whenever Chris and I will be temporarily ditching our normal review format to introduce an exciting new segment called War Crimes. In War Crimes, Chris and I will discuss a film that neither of us have ever seen, but which is extremely popular, so it should be an enthralling listen. I hope so. Maybe not for the listener, but at least for us. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Arrivederci to your audience member. succeed and not you know she's got that calendar with uh different times when she thinks she might kill herself right it's my neighbor stick around we'll be back after the break to discuss hitchcock's heirs wait 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 i can't do it